Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. I'll be reading verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we are a desperate people, broken, sin-laden, scarred, undone. And yet, I hope it's a testimony of all who are here being saved by Your Son and being sanctified by the truth of Your Word. So help me as a pastor, as a teacher, be clear with a very difficult morning here in trying to be clear. And help us all hear with alertness, with our minds energized and thinking by Your Spirit that Your continual work in Your people will be done here this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is the third and final part of one long teaching on divorce and remarriage. Previously, I have tried to show that I think Jesus should be taken at face value in Luke chapter 16 and in Mark chapter 10. We just read Luke 16. Mark 10, Jesus says it this way, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, Jesus teaches that marriage is a union of two persons, one man, one woman, become one flesh, and that is an act of God Himself. And therefore, as Jesus says, let no man or state or county or court system or religious institution undo what God has joined together. I have argued that I think, to the best of my ability, that the New Testament teaches that there is no valid reason for dissolving a marriage and remarrying another. And that's why Jesus calls in Luke and in Mark and in Matthew, that's why He calls remarriage after divorce adultery. Because God does not dissolve that union just because the state of California does. Alright, so that brings up the question, okay, those who differ with you, Joe, those good, solid, Bible-loving Christians who differ with you and want to take this Scripture seriously, what are they arguing? Then? Those who argue they're are grounds or reasons biblically for divorce, 
and some for divorce and remarriage. How are they getting there? Okay, I want to do my best to represent them and show you and then, and then deal with it. But, I mean, for instance, we, we have books out like Divorce and Remarriage, Four Christian Views. And here there are four different scholars, pastors, with their different views, and they read each other, and then they respond to the other, etc. Let me give you a summary, for instance, of three of them in this book. Carl Laney, one of the authors in this book, Carl Laney argues that the Bible intends for marriage to be permanent. There is never a need for divorce, and remarriage after divorce is not permissible. William Heth, in this book, contends that there are legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, but not for remarriage, if you did divorce, biblically. Thomas Edgar defends the position that Scripture allows for divorce and remarriage in cases of adultery or desertion. All right, so what I'm going to do for the first part of this sermon on that last one, because those are the main big arguments. Not just divorce is allowable. I'm talking about people that really take the Bible seriously, not other segments of the church. And those who do, some find there are two main biblical grounds, reasons for a valid divorce as a Christian. And that is adultery by the other spouse. Secondly, desertion, being deserted by the other spouse, whether adultery was involved or not. I mean, it just left you high and dry and they're gone. Okay, first, the ground of adultery. Why are they saying that? Because if you have been here, if you haven't, you can go listen to the previous two sermons. Joe, what you've been arguing from Luke and Mark, your problem is you failed to read Matthew's exception clauses into Mark and Luke. And this is what they mean. In chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 32, Matthew has it this way. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in chapter 19, verse 9 of Matthew, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife comma, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the argument is this. You're right, the exception clauses are not in Luke and they're not in Mark, but they didn't really need to be because in the culture, much like our culture today, everyone knew, look, adultery is valid grounds for divorce. So they would just implicitly assume that whether Jesus said it or not. Or Luke's readers. Or Mark's readers. That's the argument. It is in the air of the culture of the time, and this is true, 
The assumption is you divorce, you also have the right to remarry. Now, people who hold this view, Matthew and the exception clause, which are not in Luke and Mark, are clearly to be assumed in Luke and Mark. They don't need to be said. People to hold that view hold marriage very highly. I don't deny that. They think it's holy. But here's the argument. But if a spouse commits adultery, they sever the marital bond, and thus the innocent party is free to divorce. Doesn't have to, but free to do it. And if he or she does, is then also free to remarry. It's in the air they breathe the first century. Jesus didn't need to say it. It was implicit. For instance, one scholar who holds this view, Kostenberger, writes, rather than concluding that Jesus did not allow for any divorce in sexually consummated marriages, it is much more likely that he did not elaborate on points at which he agreed with the commonly held view in his day. But of course, divorce is a ground. I mean, adultery is a ground for divorce and remarriage. He just agreed with it. He didn't need to say it. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, what we have is Jesus explicitly giving the exception clause. Quote, except for sexual immorality. Now, the word translated sexual immorality there in the Greek is the word porneia. Okay, this has got to hang with this is going to be a rough morning this way. I don't know how else to do it. It is the Greek word porneia, which is the basic word that means fornication. Sexual immorality, not related whether you're married or not. Okay, It's a different word than the word adultery. He also, in these two passages, uses the word adultery. Both words are used. He who divorces his wife, except for porneia, fornication, then he commits Moikeia, adultery. Chapter 5 of Matthew, chapter 19 in Matthew, that's the flow. And so, what do fellow brothers, sisters argue about how to handle that? It's this. The reason Jesus, in the way Matthew translated into the Greek, the word porneia, that normally means fornication, the reason he does that because it was a word that was broader than adultery, which only married people can do, and usually refers to the other having sexual relations with that other person. Porneia, sexual immorality, couldn't bring a number of other sexual sins into play. And he wanted to cover all the kinds of different sexual sins a spouse may commit that would be grounds for divorce, like incest bestiality, homosexuality. Porneia could cover larger grounds like that where the word adultery wouldn't. 
Okay? And so their argument is this. Jesus says sexual immorality by one of the spouses severs the marital bond. And based on that, and you got to get this, these people who take the Bible seriously are arguing based on that reason, not the 389 other reasons people use. I don't love him anymore. We fell out of love. I fell in love with another. We fight too much. We, no, 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 no. They will still go and say, you divorce, you're sinning. And you have no ground for remarriage if you go ahead and do. But based on sexual immorality that we see in the Scripture, in Matthew, twice, that is grounds for divorce. Those who hold this view believe marriage is ideally indissoluble. They don't believe it's a contract of temporary convenience. As some of us at a wedding yesterday heard the pastor say, this is not uh, tryouts. See if it works. And neither do people who hold this view believe that they take marriage very seriously. And they hold that when Christians choose to divorce based on grounds that are not explicit in the Bible, like adultery, or we'll see in a minute, desertion for some who believe that one, then they are sinning and do not have grounds for remarriage. Now, there are some who hold, as we saw represented in uh, the quotations of the book I just gave you, who hold there are biblical grounds for divorce based on adultery that the other spouse committed, but still they can't find freedom to remarry. And then there are others who say, look, if divorce is permitted on the grounds of adultery because it severs the marital bond, the one flesh bond, then what is holding a person back from the freedom to remarry since that marriage is no longer a marriage and the bond is severed? And so they say they should be free to remarry. Following me? Am I going slow enough? Okay. Well, now there's one other important passage for those who hold that adultery is a ground for divorce, that they at least have to tackle. And if you'll turn there for a moment, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because here, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul, he knows these quotations of Jesus like we do now. Okay? And he's going to refer to that about what Jesus said in his ministry. And Paul, on the same subject of divorce and remarriage, does not insert the exception clause. So the question is, how come? If there really is this exception, why is it not there when Paul writes to the Corinthians? Quote, verses 10 and 11, chapter 7. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. What he means there is the tradition of what Jesus said, and we've been reading in Luke and Mark, etc., and Matthew, he has in mind. Jesus is really clear in his ministry on this. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should not, excuse me, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
And the husband should not divorce his wife. So they got, how do you explain there's no exception clause? Well, here's one. Let me give you a quote from one person who I respect. I would even recommend his preaching. Here's his argument about this text. Who He holds divorce is valid on the grounds of adultery and here. Well, okay, just go with adultery at the moment. Quote, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, Paul is addressing a problem traceable to a false asceticism in Corinth, according to which abstinence from sexual relations with one's spouse was necessary for holiness. This ascetic view of the Christian life had led some in the church at Corinth to divorce their spouses for fear of succumbing to the temptation of sex. It is divorce for that reason which Paul prohibits. You've got to get him so far. In other words, this is not a generalized statement about marriage and divorce and remarriage is the argument. It is only dealing with this crazy asceticism going on in Corinth. We're Christians now. Sex is somehow dirty and evil. We want to be pure. Maybe we should divorce our spouse and not be tempted. And Paul gives an answer to that. No, don't do that. And the writer goes on. The question of adultery is foreign to his point. Not the issue, and that's why he doesn't have the exception clause about sexual immorality in marriage. Because it's not the point of the issue. And thus, his teaching is not in conflict with that of Jesus. If in spite of his instruction now to the Corinthians, a divorce occurs, Paul says remarriage is forbidden. There are only two options, remain single or be reconciled. That's how they argue it. Now, there are others who actually argue it differently and say, in these two verses here of 1 Corinthians 7, it's not about divorce, it's about separation, but not a legal divorce. And therefore, Paul did not need to add the exception clause there. That just clearly doesn't work because in verse 11, Paul said, remain unmarried. How is that not referring to divorce? Okay. There's the, the basic biblical textual arguments for those who hold that divorce is valid in cases of the other partner committing adultery or sexual immorality. Now, the other ground that is normally argued for is the ground of being deserted by your spouse. God. And they get that from 1 Corinthians. So if you're still there, stay there. Verses 12 through 15, I'll read. Paul writes, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, meaning he has no tradition of Jesus on this issue this way. Okay, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, 
he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay, here, here's the issue Paul's dealing with. Two people, two unbelievers, they don't know Christ, they marry. One of them becomes a Christian. They're saved. And what's going on in Corinth most likely is this Man, I feel like I'll be spiritually defiled. Having sexual relations with an enemy of Christ who is my husband or who is my wife, am I defiling myself? They're wrestling with this problem. Paul answers it. No, you are not spiritually defiled. It's marriage. It doesn't defile you. Stay married to your unbelieving enemy of Christ, spouse, and to have sexual relations with them. That's what he says in verse 13 40. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he, he's not leaving, doesn't want to leave, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. You're not defiled. Matter of fact, He's in a better situation with a believer. He's made holy by being married to you. You're not defiled. That, see, that's essentially Paul's argument. Okay, now, so, those who hold what Paul is saying here, desertion, though, of an unbelieving spouse leaving a Christian spouse is grounds for divorce and then remarriage. They argue it this way. In this text, Paul is clear that a Christian spouse is not free to divorce his or her unbelieving spouse. But, if the unbeliever chooses to leave, initiates the divorce, in other words, then the Christian spouse is not enslaved. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. And the argument goes, okay, enslaved to what? The argument is, they're not enslaved to the marital covenant anymore. And thus free to remarry. In other words, they're not enslaved to the generalized biblical rule, no remarriage after divorce, which Jesus clearly taught. And which Paul just affirmed a few verses earlier in verses 10 and 11. And so being deserted 
by an unbelieving spouse leaves the Christian person free to remarry. That's the argument. Okay, so how come I don't fall into those two camps? It's the big question. Let me deal with the Matthew exception clauses first. This is where the wall started to fall for me. Because, let me just say, most of us, we, Jesus, just He grabs us, doesn't He? He saves us. And it is amazing the things that we just assume about God, right? You heard me say that, well, I, don't, I don't want to use that term, but most of us, when we become Christians, we don't just really believe in God's sovereignty over how we got saved, do we? We just, we, we just assume a lot of other things. It's usually the Bible down the road that says, look what it says, and it shocks us, and, it, and we don't know how to get around it, and many times we end up falling 10, 15 years later to something we believe to be really true and precious now about God's sovereignty, for instance, and how we're saved. Because no one's born believe, born. Again, believing that normally, it's very rare. Well, I think on this issue of marriage, it's very rare that a person gets born again, comes to Christ, and believes this radical, crazy teaching that I think Jesus teaches. That marriage is until one of the spouses is dead. And thus, there's no ground. That, that's just, no one believes that automatically. And, okay, so, and I was in that camp. But this is how it started to fall for me when I had to really start to think about the issue more than I ever did when I became a pastor. And that is what I've showed the last few sermons about Mark and Luke. In there, Jesus' statement on divorce and remarriage is just absolute. Okay, now, the Roman readers of Mark... And the Gentile Greek readers of Luke, these target audiences, they do not know about an exception to Jesus' absolute statement. You divorce your spouse, marry another, you are committing adultery. Period. They don't know of an exception clause. Well, you, and you can't say, well, they got the synoptic gospels. You know, just open them up and compare them. You can't do that. They don't have the synoptic gospels that point. Luke doesn't assume, well, he's going to be reading John and Mark. There's no, no. Luke assumes on a very crucial subject in the church. This is Jesus' teaching. There's no exception clause. Mark assumes on this very crucial subject. <laughs> this, it's going to affect people's lives. There's no exception clause. Okay, that's a little bothersome to me if they understood that there was an exception clause meaning the exception of adultery in a consummated marriage. Now, the argument to what I just said by other believers is what I showed earlier. No, 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 no. Everyone knows that if a spouse commits adultery, that's biblical, godly ground for divorce. So you don't need to say it. Okay, so that brings me to the next step. Like a good scientist, let's put out hypothesis. A scientist of the text, you put out hypothesis. And I tried to show this the last couple of weeks. Okay, here's the hypothesis. Let's assume 
that Matthew's exception clause, and therefore Jesus' exception clause, is that if one of the spouses has sexual relations with another person other than their spouse, that innocent spouse can divorce them and remarry. Let's assume that. And this is where my problem comes in. When I assume that and still read Luke, it doesn't work. It's a contradiction to what Luke says that Jesus said. And we'll see in a minute. It's also a contradiction in Matthew himself in verse 32 of chapter 5. In brief, Luke says in chapter 16, verse 18, the innocent wife, meaning her husband, left her and remarried another woman and thus committed adultery against his previous wife. That innocent wife is left by him divorced. We saw last time, that is a passive verb. She didn't do it. It was done to her by the will of her husband. Okay, that's the situation. And Jesus says this in verse 18 of Luke 16. And he who marries a woman divorced, passive verb, it happened to her. The guy took off and committed adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband, he commits adultery. Okay, so just follow me. That's assumed. The exception clause means adultery. Okay? If it does, that means Jesus is saying, Lady, if your husband commits adultery, then you are free to remarry after divorce. Right? Okay, all right. If that's true, then why in this verse does Jesus say to her, Lady, after your husband divorces you, and thus commits adultery by remarriage, then when you remarry, that new husband commits adultery with you. I, I don't know. Did you follow it? That's my problem. I, I don't know how to get around it. Assuming that the exception clause means the other spouse commits adultery doesn't work with Luke. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 for a moment. Jesus here says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, for a moment, assume that the exception clause refers to adultery. Then, Jesus is saying in this verse, a husband makes or causes his wife in her remarriage to commit adultery, except in cases where she has already made herself an adulteress. Does that make sense? 
If your wife did not commit adultery on you, you have no grounds for divorce and remarriage. But oh, if she did, you do. Well, if she's the innocent one, and he didn't have grounds, is the point here, he remarries, she's left, the culture's almost going to force her into another marriage, Jesus says, you, sir, were the cause of her committing adultery. Well, how could that be? If her husband committed adultery, she should be free to remarry. Does that make sense? All right. So, here's the point at this point now. Trying to conform the absolute statements that we have of Jesus in Luke and in Mark, to conform them to the exception clause in Matthew, meaning adultery, I, it doesn't, I don't know how to make it work. It just seems like a contradiction. So then, let's try another hypothesis. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe there's something about Matthew's exception clause that is not at all in contradiction to the absolute statements of Jesus in Luke and in Mark. Maybe he is just as absolute Maybe there's something about the exception clause that is in no way contradictory to Luke. And that brings us to the exception clause itself. And the problem with the wording. He says, except for, not adultery, doesn't use that word. He says, except for fornication. Okay, strange. Why does he use the word Porneia, and not the word moikeia. Porneia means fornication. Moikeia is the word for adultery. And they're both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. Now, most commentators, I think, make the huge assumption that the word porneia just means essentially sexual immorality during and in the marriage. Thus, essentially, it means I adultery. Okay. And the NIV paraphrase made a huge decision in their interpretation and translated the word porneia, marital unfaithfulness. I just, I don't think so. I just, I don't think that is what Jesus meant or what Matthew meant by pinning his words. And numbers of scholars don't think that's how you should understand the word porneia. And they have differing reasons. They come at it in different ways. Let me give you a taste, for instance. Some interpret the exception clause, except for porneia, to mean except in the cases where this believer is married to a Gentile pagan. Okay. A Gentile idolater, idol worshiper. And they got their arguments. And I'm not going to spend the time on them. I, I don't think that's what he means, but some do. Another position is people who view, Jesus used the word porneia, this larger word of sexual immorality, to refer particularly to Leviticus 18 where God is clear on outlawing ancestral relationships in marriages. 
that person is too close of a relative to marry. Don't uncover their nakedness. Let me give you a taste of this. This is Carl Laney's position, and this is how he summarizes it. According to this interpretation of the way Jesus uses porneia here, according to this interpretation of the exception clause, one who has married a near relative in violation of Jewish law should seek annulment. But for all others, divorce is disallowed. Jesus, then, is basically teaching no divorce. But one unique exception may be recognized when marriage has taken place within the prohibited degrees of Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 to 18. That's his argument. I don't think that's what he means either. What makes the most sense to me is what is known as the betrothal view, which numbers of scholars hold to. And most helpful to me is the way that John Piper argues it, the flow. And so that's what I'm going to lay out for you right now. Starts this way. Why did Matthew say, whoever divorces his wife, except in cases where she commits fornication? Why did he say that? Or porneia. That's the general way it should be understood. Doesn't have to be, but I'm going to argue that in a minute. Why, did, why is it said porneia? Why did he not use the word moikeia, adultery? There would be no controversy. Your spouse commits adultery, you got grounds. He didn't say that. Why did he not say, he who divorces his wife, except in the cases where his wife commits adultery, then he commits adultery. Because then he uses the word moikeia for adultery that he would be committing. So again, remember, porneia, fornication, sexual immorality, without any relationship thinking about married or not, okay? Moikeia, adultery. Here's the second thing now. In the Scripture, in the New Testament, numbers of times you have these two words, porneia and moikeia, together, denoting different Sins. Just give me a taste. In Mark 7, 21, quote, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Porneia, sexual immorality. Theft, murder. And here's the other word, moikeia, adultery. Seem to be different things there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, we read, Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, the word porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, moikeia. Why do seem to be different ways of sinning sexually between the sexually immoral and the adulterers? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, 
Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, because God will judge the porneia and the moikeia. He will judge. All you single people who have sexual relations with people, you are a fornicator. He will judge them. And he will judge all you married people who have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse, called adulterers, moikeia. Again, so there's a taste of it, okay? They're used together denoting different sins. Now, in our text, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, they're also used together. They're both there. But then there's one other time that Matthew, because that's who we're referring to now, Matthew's Gospel. There's one other time that Matthew uses the word porneia in his narrative. And that's chapter 15, verse 19. And he again uses it alongside of the word moikeia. Quote, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Secondly, murder. Thirdly, adultery. Moikeia. Fourthly, fornication. Porneia. Denoting something that is distinct from each other. So, at this point now, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, his writing, he understands, evidently, porneia, to refer to something that is different than moikeia. Okay? It refers to, in other words, fornication. So, it's at least at this point, isn't it, clearly possible that what he means by porneia, even in chapter 5 and chapter 19, is what it normally means. Right? Fornication, not adultery. So just kind of hold that there. Then in John chapter 8, the Jewish leaders, if you remember, they implicitly accused Jesus of being born of fornication. Pornea. Why? You know, word was around in town. I think the movies get that kind of right. She's knocked up. During the betrothal period, she's pregnant before she is actually married and consummated the marriage with Joseph. So it's called fornication. That's what fornication is. People who are unmarried having sex. Okay, so that will bring us back then to Matthew at the beginning, dealing with Joseph and Mary. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found pregnant. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay, Joseph doesn't know this, right? Not yet. And her husband, that really is just the word anir, it's the word for man and woman, not a special word. Okay? 
they're betrothed to be married. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay. They are betrothed. In other words, they are legally pledged in their society to be married. It is much stronger. Jewish betrothal in the first century is much stronger than our cultural engagement is. Once you are betrothed, it takes a legal, religious action of divorce to undo that initial betrothal. Okay? Before you consummate that marriage, you still need to have divorce. In verse 19, Joseph resolved to, quote, Divorce Mary. That's the word. Apalusai. Divorce. It's the exact same word Matthew will use in chapter 5. He who divorces his wife. Chapter 19. He who divorces his wife. Apalusai. And so here in chapter 1, Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, calls Joseph just. Righteous if he would have divorced Mary. Got that? There's Joseph. She's pregnant. He knows he has not slept with her. <laughs> Obviously, she slept with another man. It's called fornication. It's called porneia. It was grounds for divorce. And he was on the verge of officially divorcing her, meaning divorcing, separating from the betrothal commitment to marry Mary. To undo it. To undo the future marriage, which has not happened yet. Okay, that's the situation. And Matthew, you've got to get this, because this, 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 is, this is the argument. Matthew considered that what Joseph would have done in divorce would have not been wrong. If he would have called off that future marriage, he would have gotten the official divorcement with the legal slash religious authorities. He would not have been sinning. He would not have been wrong. She had committed fornication in his mind before the angel let him know what happened. She had committed fornication. That is grounds to not go through with that promise and that legal commitment to marry her. Based on what? She committed porneia. Fornication. Okay, you follow me? Matthew is the only gospel writer who tells this story. About Joseph's deliberation. Do I divorce her? And he's a good man and I want to embarrass her. But, okay, he's the only one who tells that story about his perceived fornication that Mary committed. 
And since Matthew is the only one who told that story about Joseph being just, not unjust, not sinful, to divorce Mary, he was the only gospel writer that when he came to Jesus' remarks would feel the pressure to clarify that he's not contradicting himself in what he said in chapter 1 of Matthew. In other words, to clarify that when Jesus made these absolute statements about married people who have consummated that marriage, and now they're actually married, he's, oh, except for, don't get confused, I don't mean situations like Joseph and Mary. I don't mean those who would divorce based on finding out the other person committed fornication during that long year of betrothal. I don't mean that situation. I mean when you're actually married. Does that make sense? Okay. So he knew. He knew that Jesus, on different occasions, because Jesus spoke about this over numbers of years, numbers of times. So Matthew's there. He knows Jesus himself had used the exception clause. And he made sure, like Mark and Luke didn't feel they needed to, Matthew made sure, I'm going to make... Jesus' other words come in here too, especially for my narrative, to make it clear there's no contradiction here. And so Matthew has Jesus saying what he had said on an occasion, whoever divorces his wife. No, no, not including, of course, the case of fornication, porneia, during the betrothal period. I don't mean that. Okay, But now, whoever else, without that exception, divorces his wife. Marries another, commits adultery. Right? That's it. That's the argument. It's the only thing that I think ultimately for me works and makes sense. See, to understand Pornea this way, it does not force Matthew's gospel to disagree with what Luke says. Or what Matthew himself says in verse 32 of chapter 5. This solution explains why the word porneia is used in the exception clause and not the word moikeia. Ah, it makes sense. This view squares with Matthew's own understanding of porneia elsewhere. In chapter 15 where he clearly meant Unmarried sex, not adultery. And it fits Matthew's wider context. Now, one more, much shorter. What about the view that desertion by a spouse is grounds for divorce and subsequent remarriage? Turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the main text. Verse 15 but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Okay. This, in its context, does not mean that when a Christian is deserted by an unbelieving spouse, then he or she is free to remarry. It's not what Paul's saying. It means 
that a Christian is not enslaved to fight in order to stay married when the unbelieving spouse is filing for divorce. Quit fighting and making a ruckus over it. That's Paul's point. You see his reason there in verse 15. No, no, don't do that, Christian. He says, God has called you to peace, not war. The reason I think it means that is first this. The words, not enslaved to stay married, when the unbeliever keeps insisting on leaving and suing for a divorce, it means just don't fight. The point of that verse is not, as some argue, the brother or the sister is not enslaved to stay single. I don't think that's what Paul means. And thus they're free to remarry. Paul loved singleness. Paul promoted singleness. Paul lived singleness. The idea that he would speak of singleness is slavery. I don't know, it doesn't make sense. That's the first reason. Second reason in the context is what he had just said in verses 10 and 11. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So, in the context, to see Paul four verses later say, yeah, go ahead after you divorce and remarry, when he just said, you're divorced, remain unmarried. I don't see it working. And then thirdly, in verse 16, Paul gives his argument for what he does mean in verse 15. Okay, in verse 15 he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now look at verse 16. For, that means argument for what I just said there in verse 15. Here's the reason I said verse 15. Because, how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That argument does not support the idea of your free to marry in verse 15. That argument supports that you are free to accept being divorced peacefully. That's what it supports. See it again? God has called you to peace. Don't go to war in the courts over this. He's called you to peace. Because how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, Paul is saying, you don't know that. Therefore, stop using as an excuse, but I could be the means of his salvation. I should fight him not to divorce me. Paul says, don't use that as an argument. You don't. Know that. So the flow of thought here is this. 
In such cases, the Christian is not enslaved to fight to stay married when the unbelieving spouse demands out because you have no assurance that fighting to stay in will save him or her. And the, the last reason is what Paul says at the end of this chapter in verse 39 where he is just in my mind absolutely in cahoots with Jesus' stance. That the only thing that breaks the covenant that Chris and Silvana made with each other yesterday is one of them dying. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Uh, only a Christian. Only in the Lord. Okay. All right. I'm going to spend about two more minutes. I probably should spend a whole lot longer, but I just, I just want to just do a little sweeping really quickly because I think there are other questions and and you can ask other ones I will just forget. So let me make some closing statements after three weeks. I think it is the biblical position that death is the grounds for remarriage. Because that's the only thing that breaks the bond that God put together. Secondly, let me say this. Divorce and remarriage are not the unpardonable sin. They're not. Thirdly, those people who find themselves divorced and remarried, they're on a second marriage, or their fourth. What do they do? You don't sin by undoing that covenant of marriage that you're in. Till death do you part. You mean it's possible to be a sinner and to have even entered a union initially that you should not have? And recognize it and confess your sin and be cleansed and then be the greatest wife to that man, the greatest husband to that woman till death do you part and Jesus will honor it. That's exactly what I mean to say. It is amazing what He does with our sin. And how He produces holiness through the cross of Christ. The reason I'm going to I say this, there's a couple grounds. Remember a few weeks back, the divorce and remarriage passage in Deuteronomy, it did not talk as if that second marriage of that woman was not a marriage. It was a marriage, it was a real covenant, they were real oaths. 
Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria. Go get your husband. I have no husband. You've spoken correctly. You've had five husbands. Jesus didn't say, you've only had one husband. And all these other husbands are not really real. No, he recognized you went, should not have, but made covenant. And that made them real. And today, you are to trust Him and obey Him and love and hold. Keep yourself from all others until death do you part. Jesus recognized those other marriages as valid. And He even recognized the woman or the man she's shacking up with is not a marriage. You did not come together in the culture and make oaths in front of witnesses. It seems to be Jesus' position. Jesus, let me close, takes sinners. He works His holiness in us. And I know He has taken people who have divorced and remarried. And He has taken that marriage. That I have a position that says they shouldn't have entered it. I think Jesus' position is that. And then he made that marriage so strong and an example to others in the church. He has that right and that power. So people who find themselves in that position should take great comfort that there's nothing that holds you back from growing and being a model marriage as another fellow sinner. Amen. Let's pray. And as I'm praying and we will be singing, we will be passing out the cup and the bread. And if you are a baptized believer in Christ, feel free to grab the bread and the cup and hold on to them. We will be praying over them and partaking together. So Father, this is the covenant example of all covenants, of all of our marital covenants or our singleness as we're in covenant with You, Christ, as we will partake of Your body which was broken for us and of Your blood which was shed, the new covenant. And over these last number of weeks, whether we're single, whether we're married, we have heard so clearly in Scripture how highly You exalt the preciousness of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. First and foremost, because it is a parable to the world that preaches Your faithfulness as our husband to your bride, the church. And you will never break covenant. And in that joy, we now prepare our hearts to partake in a few moments together as the body of Christ with your body.